Welcome to the People Data for Good podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back to the People Data for Good podcast. I'm here with Rob Cross, one of my heroes. Rob, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Al? It's good to be here, man. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining me. And when I say you're one of my heroes, I mean, you have inspired me time and again in your work around collaboration, overload, well-being, you know, the value of networks. So for those who might not know your background and who you are, you mind doing a quick introduction? Sure. Yeah. So I uh, right now I teach at Babson College, which is a, a breath of fresh air for me. It's one of the few universities that I think still exists that really care about what's going on in business in a really deep way. And so it's been a real kind of neat shift of, of kind of my career being up here for the past three or four years. But probably, you know, the, the larger part that's relevant to what we're talking about today is I also run a consortium called the Connected Commons. That's a group that's grown to about 110 organizations. And our focus in it really is um, using analytics, applying uh, analytics to look at different kinds of ways that collaboration and connectivity have both positive and negative impact uh, in organizations. And so whole uh, suite of, of work that we're doing right now, ranging from kind of big, big studies, uh, looking at culture and org design as we move forward, uh, kind of mid-tier studies, looking at kind of team and, and kind of agile implementations, if you will, you know, from a network standpoint, uh, and then a whole series of things kind of at the individual level, like you were talking about high uh, performers, well-being, things, uh, things like that. So, so that's kind of me in a nutshell. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, it's a big nut. It's a yeah. big nutshell. Um, and, you know, I say that, uh, you know, tongue in cheek, certainly, but I also say it with respect and admiration because you have looked at, the system. In other words, what is hitting a worker? You know, all this stuff, all these mm -hmm. angles of communication. Can you mm -hmm. speak to that um, before we get, you know, into your history and what has inspired you and, and got you to where you are? But really, you know, we have all these things hitting us in this day and age. You know, people yeah. want to get in touch. Can, can you just speak to that for a second? I'd love to, and, and maybe two different ways if I could. Uh, one is, you know, you, you mentioned the idea of collaborative overload, right? And that was one thing that I got very interested in. Starting about 10 years ago, um, initially wrote a piece with Adam Grant and Reb, and then we've written subsequent pieces on it. But what I could see in all our analytics is that the, the volume of collaborative demands was rising on, on everybody, right? And it's a product of, you know, all the consultants coming in saying you need flatter organizational structures and all the vendors coming in and saying you need my technology to connect more instantaneously and globalization, interdependence of work, you know, there's all sorts of things that are happening. But what we were seeing is that that, you know, the amount of time people were spending on the phone, on email, in meetings, and then whatever um, instant messaging application that companies are using, uh, had, has really been rising like crazy. It got to be about 85% pre-pandemic of most people's work week. And as we've gone into the pandemic and coming out the other end, that number rose about five to eight hours for most people and people collaborating earlier into the morning, deeper into the night, you know, as they're responding in different ways. So um, that got me interested in two things. One is, you know, specifically around a, a book I have coming out, that was really around understanding how do people perform well in this context. And, and so we would do the analytics and we would see what the connectivity of the successful people looked like. You know, those people that get and stay in the upwardly mobile category. And the really interesting thing I found, number one, is it was never a big network. 
that predicted the high performers. It wasn't just knowing a lot of people indiscriminately, despite that kind of tendency a lot of times to think that more collaboration is better. Um, but what we found in it, it was actually that, that the people that were outperforming, number one, they were more collaboratively efficient than their, mm. their peers. Mm. And so they were buying back about a day a week, and they were doing it in very specific behaviors. I interviewed 100 women, 100 men, really trying to see what are you doing that lets you buy back this time. And then they were actually collaborating differently when they did that. They were collaborating in ways that enabled them to, to get scale in their work. So they weren't just kind of buying time back and having more meetings, you know what I mean, or, or moving mm -hmm. faster. It was kind of the way they were interacting that, um, that shifted. And so that's been a really big piece is kind of boiling these ideas down and actually helping individuals see that you actually can control more than you think a lot of times. When I started this work, I was convinced the enemy was out there. It was time zones, emails, nasty bosses, you know, you name it. And I came out the other end completely convinced that 50% or more of the problem is us, you know, and how we think we need to show up in situations, the patterns that we just fall into responding too quickly or the things we give up too easily. Um, and so there's been a whole piece of my work that's really uh, been gearing around that. Um, but then if I could tell you one more thing, because I think it'll lead. Please, to, please. Well, I mean, we'll come back to both. So, yeah. Please, okay. So what what uh, what also got me interested and I was I was you know, interested in this from a performance standpoint, right? And seeing, okay, what are more successful people doing in this hyper-connected world? How are they pulling this off? <laughs> and then that led to a bunch of the members of the consortium saying, you know, we love the work around that because we can build it into onboarding. We can build it into leadership programs and, and actually have some specificity behind, you know, what matters. But what we'd really love to know also is what creates a happy person. <laughs> and I mean that kind of tongue in cheek, but, you know, we were measuring it as career satisfaction, thriving, resilience, well-being. And as a part of that, you know, we got all the analytics and we could see that there were certain kinds of connections that predicted people just doing better. You know what I mean? And I say happy, but I don't mean that in a giddy sense, but just people that are kind of scoring higher and doing what they were meant to do in life. Right. And, uh, and then I, I started these interviews on it because I really wanted to understand what was uh, creating well-being for people from a relational standpoint, right? Not from a, uh, you know, physical health. Am I, am I tracking my intake, getting sleep? Like we have apps for that, or certainly not from a, a mindfulness standpoint, because there's a lot, you know, that's in that space. What I was really interested in is what was the impact of connections. And um, what we came down on is, you know, in the model, we could see that there were four kinds of dimensions of well-being that relationships played a role in, right? How we, how we stay physically healthy, uh, how we experience growth in and out of work, how we experience a sense of purpose and meaning in our lives and how we experience resilience. You know, so resilience is one example of you, we're conditioned, we're told constantly that it's us that has resilience, that we have grit, we have inner fortitude. But if you really look at how people make it through difficult stretches or setbacks, most of us, if we're lucky enough, we have connections that we fall back on for a lot of things that really matter. You know, that can be empathy, it can be perspective in a situation, seeing a path forward, laughing, you know, at the absurdity of a situation, if you have the relationships, you know, if you've gotten, you know, two unidimensional and don't have them, then you're, you're in trouble. But um, what, what fascinated me in this work is I would be talking my very first interview, I said, tell me about a time in your life when you were becoming more physically healthy. And what was the role of connection to a fantastic discussion to really understand that. And then on a whim, I just said, well, what got you in trouble to begin with? 
you know, what hit you, you know, at this kind of late thirties that you were in such trouble that you had to take concerted action. And she paused for like 90 seconds. And she said, I don't know. <laughs> she said, I guess just life or some, you know, variant like that. And we spent the next 45 minutes kind of teasing that apart. And it became a really central piece of the next 199 <laughs> interviews and something that I've come to call micro stresses. And it's these small touch points that are coming at us today through relationships some people that we don't like, some people that we love dearly, but but they hit us in small ways. You may sense misalignment with a colleague. You may see a team member that needs to be coached. You know, you may get a text from a child that's troubling and you can't tell if they're over it in 30 seconds and you worry about it for three hours, you know. And we go through the day and we get hit today um, with probably 20, 25, 30 of these things, um, go home exhausted, and we can't put our finger on it anymore. Mm-hmm. We're good at recognizing the big thing that stresses us out, maybe a tough client, but we're not able to kind of see and remember all these small, invisible touch points mm. um, without some kind of aid to think about how do I shape that context. And so, so there's been kind of two ways. When you ask that question, I had, you know, obviously two big studies going off in my mind. One was how do you reduce overload? How do you understand it and take control of it? And then just as importantly, I've seen this micro stress idea is really about how do you start to see the things that are systemic enough you need to act on and shape that context. And it's a really big deal. You know, there's so much work on mindfulness or things like that that's really valuable. But at the heart of it, it's just teaching people to persist in the system they've built or that they've let kind of accrue around them. And this is one of the first steps that we've been able to take from the network standpoint to say, here's how you need to shape the negatives, you know, and adapt that. And then here's some of the ways you lean into the positives to create purpose or health or, you know, other, other elements. So, so I promise not to go on like that for all of my answers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, raw. I mean, I just like, I'm listening to you as I'm sure others um, will be soon. And it's just, it, not only is it fascinating, it, it's very uh, humanistic. Like everyone can relate to it, particularly with COVID, right? And there's so many, uh, you know, branches I can take that. And I want to go to this one. Um, what you just shared there at the end uh, reminded me of Sean Aker's work in the happiness advantage. Mm-hmm. The number one attribute of happy and successful people in his research was the quality of an individual support system. System. And the first time I read it, I was like, oh, man, <laughs> my support system sucks. And But then I, I went on and I reflected and I talked to many um, folks about this, uh, friends and colleagues alike. And it says it's not only the quality of the support system, it's the willingness and ability of the individual to access that support system. And that means the individual has to make themselves vulnerable, identify boundaries and, and other things that are outside you know, that are, I'm sorry, in his or her control. So my question to you is, we have all this stuff coming out of, we just talked about, as you just talked about, um, do we have to do better at setting boundaries and creating elasticity in our lives? Does that mean minimizing the number of relationships that we have? When I say minimizing, I mean, right-sizing. I mean, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So, and when I'm, when I, you know, even in the book, it got, it was titled Beyond Collaboration Overload. And because that term is so poignant for people, but it, sometimes that leaves the impression that I'm saying you reduce the, the collaborations you're having. And that's really not the magic that I see of the people that are really doing well. They tend to be doing things that get greater efficiencies uh, in the interactions. 
And they tend to do things that help guard against jumping into things that they shouldn't be involved with. Um, and so one of the fascinating things, you know, for me in all these interviews is it, it's become incredibly clear to me that we all have kind of deeply driven needs that lead us to jump into collaborations when we shouldn't. You know, and so most people kind of resonate with this idea of, you know, at some point in your life being asked to do something and you know, with every fiber of your being, you shouldn't do it, right? You're sure you shouldn't do this thing. And the next second you go through, here's the eight reasons I have to do this thing <laughs> and you jump in and do it. And then six, eight, 12 weeks later, you're overloaded. And sometimes you can't even tie back to the fact that you caused the problem. You know, you're looking at other people and saying, oh, it's this and this and this and everything. And, and so, you know, for me, that means that these these drivers are very unique. Like for some, it's need for accomplishment. For some, it's uh, uh, servant-based mindset, right? They love to help. They see helping is really critical to what a friend does or a leader does. And so they jump in and they become the path of least resistance. For some people, it's fear, just absolute fear of what their colleagues think or fear of missing out. There's kind of a set of these drivers that kind of have us, you know, jumping in when we shouldn't. Mm. And so... To me, it's, I do think there's an intentionality that people need to, to, to play in, especially today, and be thinking really carefully around, um, am I shaping the context in a way that's aligned with kind of my North Star priorities? Mm -hmm. um, and to me, I don't mean anything abstract by that. I really mean, are you really clear on what capabilities do you want to be distinguishing on in the next five years? Mm -hmm. um, are you really clear on what values you want to experience at work and at home? And, and how's your identity kind of being built, you know, as you're evolving. And, and if people really write that down and get specific about it and don't leave it as an abstract idea, then you find they start structuring interactions that explore, like, how could I be doing this more? Who could I be working with on this front more? And suddenly a project comes up and they get a reputation on this thing. And, and it, it like allows them to kind of forge their future in a way that the people that don't do that, that just get responsive to every single email and trying to be the fastest, quickest, you know, responsive person, um, they, they, they become susceptible to the system defining, right, their success uh, ultimately. So um, uh, I think that's one of the most important things. I'll tell you one quick story and then I'll, I'll stop on it. The Going into COVID, um, <clears throat> I had the, the benefit because of my association with, with a few of the research groups that they would come back to me and say, Rob, would you help us shape a questionnaire that we're sending out to a couple thousand companies? And and so I, I did a few things in there around collaboration and well-being. But one of the most insightful things is I said, can we just have an open-ended question at the end around what are you learning from this experience? You know, and this was about eight weeks in, something like that, that, um, that these things went out. And usually, you, you know yourself, right, you do an open-ended question field like that to a big survey, you may get two pages back of responses, like nobody fills it out. But we were getting hundreds of pages back, you know, and they were really thoughtful, kind of introspective, you know, re reactions, but they were from two totally different camps. And so the, the first, you know, I'd, I'd go through all these results, and I would see this some variant of you know, thank goodness I don't have my commute anymore, right? I bought back two hours, two and a half hours a day. I'm talking to my significant other. I'm healthier. My kids like me, whatever it may be. But thank goodness, you know, I, I have that. But then you'd see the exact reverse um, with people saying, oh, my gosh, where did my commute go? That was the only time I had to think. Now that's been taken away from me. I'm overwhelmed. And the reality, you know, that hit me when I looked at that is for that second group of people, it wasn't the commute, Right. It was the fact that they gave up control of that time. 
mm-hmm. and they allowed things to kind of come in on them. They weren't clear, right, on what was important, where the priorities were, and shaping their life in that direction. And I think that's, to me, the most important thing for all of us to be taken forward, because it's only going to be more ambiguous, no matter right. what the return to work looks like. Um, but, it, but you know, you're either going to drive the ship, and we have more, I believe, more control now than any other time in history to shape what we do and who we do it with. But there's a swath of us that give it up too, too, too quickly. You know what I mean? So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the words and concepts that are coming to mind are like the power of intention, uh, focus, um, prioritization. And I work with a lot of coaches, um, not only here in the San Francisco Bay area, but uh, around the country and around the world. And a lot of them, have spent time with their clients, uh, helping them say no, uh, because to your point, everyone wants to be a good person. You know, they want to be helpful, um, but we have to create boundaries. It sounds like is that um, something that you're finding? Because in then you what to say no to, right? Right. Can you speak to that? Right, and and to who and how and right. every, yeah, you know, on that front, yeah, I absolutely. And you know what I what I find is um, people have more latitude than they give themselves to to put structure, you know, into the situations. And the you know the the funniest thing is I was going through the first two hundred interviews on the overload studies. Um, you know, I would be talking to these people, and they would say, "Well, I." You know, here's what I do in terms of meetings and calendaring. And then about the midpoint of that 90 minute discussion, they would start to get a sense of what I was really trying to understand. And, and, and inevitably there would be some moment where they would say, Rob, I hit a point in my life where I had to take control. You know what I mean? It was like things were out of, out of control and their voice would rise, the emotion, the intensity, everything else. So I would always think that the next sentence was going to be magnificent. <laughs> you know, I, I did something huge and went to, I don't know, hike the Himalayas, whatever it may be. <laughs> And, uh, and, and it took me 120 interviews in to, to realize that it was never magnificent. <laughs> it was almost always, I'm going to do, I would say I was going to go home one day a week on time, or I was going to, um, you know, not answer emails six to 9 PM until the kids go to bed or just putting boundaries, you know, up mm-hmm. like that. And what I thought was interesting. So this is a form of saying no, you know what I mean? And there's okay. other direct forms I'll come back to, but, um, people would, would worry about it. You know, and they would tell me these stories, like I talked to other people, should I go do this big egregious thing? And it wasn't an egregious thing, it was a small thing. But then they would go do it and they, you know, 99% of them just started laughing in the interview half the time because they would say nobody even noticed, right? Mm -hmm. It was these expectations I'd kind of built up in my head of what, you know, how, what and how I needed to show up that started to create the trepidation or started to put, you know, uh, burdens on me in terms of saying yes all the time as well. And so I would hear a lot of people say the day that I figured out that no doesn't have to be binary, you know, it doesn't have to be yes or no. It can actually be, let me give you transparency into what my demands are. Let's think about when and how we accomplish this. Um, You know, it changes the whole nature of the conversation. You're giving the other person a choice in it and you're kind of problem solving together. Um, Or, you know, if I look at it from a team standpoint, one of the main problems we see that are crushing teams today is you have these first level and, and maybe early manager, manager leaders that have gotten where they've gotten to by killing themselves and always saying yes. And now they're passing it in too, and they're burning their teams out. 
And, and again, it's like you, you, you have different ways of doing it. Like I, one person I spoke with said she would sit down anytime anybody asked her something and she would draw out an impact to effort grid, <laughs> you yeah. know, literally just hand draw it out. And let's say, is this high, you know, effort and low impact? And if so, let's rethink it, you know, and, and it was just a device, right? In that moment to very quickly say, um, you know, how do I think about this? And, and she said for her, it did two things, right? It, it, it stopped a lot of the crazy asks because the people then got conditioned to know she's going to do this to me. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask something ridiculous. And then it also created, again, that space in the moment where a no wasn't binary, right? It was, let's figure this out. Let's see kind of how we, you know, how we do it. But I do think that's a, that's a critical thing because our organizations, they don't have enough analytics to see the demands that are on people yet. I hope we get there, but. <laughs> Well, yeah, I hope we get there too. And that's one of my life's missions as well. And I love that exercise, by the way, um, for a variety of reasons, not only for individuals, but for, for systems in terms of priorities, prioritizing projects and, and so forth. But one of the things that is uh, coming up for me, and I imagine listeners as well, is there's, there's a cliche out there that if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Mm. And is that true? Is that a good idea? Uh, because we as human beings, correct me if I'm wrong, are all constrained by time. And yes, we can be as efficient as we can be as humans in doing our jobs. However, there is a boundary out there. There is, you know, where it's too much, where we start to sacrifice our well-being, we start to sacrifice our relationships, our health. You know, so can you speak to to that notion that hey? There are limits, and yeah, you know, what do you think about that? That cliche, <laughs> you know, that yeah. hey, you want something done, give it to a business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So I'll, I'll kind of at two levels the things that are going off in my mind. One is that um, one of the insidious problems with collaborative overload at an individual level is it feels good right up until it doesn't. You know what <laughs> I mean? You feel like you're in the thick of things, and you're energized, and people are re- reacting off you. You're helping right up until that point where it's either one project too many or a significant other says no more work through the weekend or whatever it is that kind of starts a, a downward spiral. And, and that happens a lot of times and happens pretty quickly. <laughs> and, and what I'm finding in the analytics is, you know, our attrition models used to show that it was people that couldn't get connected enough, quickly enough that would leave the organizations and we learned a lot about how do you help knit them in more productively by very counterintuitive things. They're very different than like the first 90 days or other things like that seem to be working today. But more and more, we're finding that there, it's a bimodal model where they overwhelmed people and they're very specific ways that we kind of look to see who they are. It's not just that they're a lot of information ties, but a lot of other people saying I need more of their time and things like that that are predictors of where these pinch points are happening. Um, many of them are quitting, you know, rather than trying to figure out how to solve the problem because they can't, you know, their roles have become unmanageable. And usually they get into that position because they're very good at what they did. You know what I mean? The system kind of draws them in. So, you know, that idea of kind of continually going to that person um, and not being aware, you know, of the fact that maybe the burnout is approaching or is past is a really big one because when you lose them, it's not just them and their abilities walking out the door. It's the way they enabled work to get done in the network too. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things that I'm hopeful for with the more passive analytics is that, you know, companies get better and smarter at seeing these threshold models in mm. there and saying, okay, where, 
not just by the volume of the interactions, but also by the diversity of the demands. That's the second really big thing that creates problems. Where am I kind of passing points of reasonableness? You know what I mean? On the front of person and, um, and things about it. Yeah, guys, there, there's um, my temptation is to talk about this at a systematic level in formulating talent strategies and workforce plans. And I, I want to get to that in, in a minute. Uh, but what I want to ask first is around um, individual ways of being. So one of my favorite books is Quiet, The Power of Introverts in yeah. the World That Can't yeah. Stop Talking by Susan Cain. <laughs> and it is the your reality that we as human beings, are, we show up differently. And, you know, some people are introverts where, you know, the bunch of stuff coming at them is just their nightmare, like me. <laughs> and there's others who are who might have heightened capacity to deal with the number of inquiries and the amount of stimuli that, that they're receiving. So I don't know if your work has gotten to that uh, level of depth, but even anecdotally, um, what are your thoughts around different ways of being, different job families, you know, reacting to collaborative overload and the associated yeah. dynamics uh, differently? Yeah, I think so. You know, we've done a huge amount of work looking at um, putting uh, different measures of personality traits right on top of these networks. So extroversion and introversion are a whole suite of other things that I won't go into in a huge amount. One of the fascinating things to me is um, it's it doesn't predict, you know, as much as we might think in the network sense. So if you look in organizations, you're as likely to see an extrovert as an introvert uh, in, in being well-connected in the networks. There's a slight tendency for extroverts to be reaching more, for introverts to be sought more um, mm -hmm. in there. So there's nuance, you know, behind it. Um, but, but inside organizations, a lot of times it seems it's more about the intentionality of kind of building the right sets of connections. That's, that's the, the, the big driver. In terms of kind of well-being and, and how you're managing and, and yourself, you know, whether that's wildly draining for you or not. Mm -hmm. When I went through the interviews, there's a, there's a big emphasis right now on blocking reflective time, right, in calendars. People are kind of talking about that. There's places that are showing a two-hour block is optimal for, for productivity. Um, and the reason I think that is is because we – underestimate the switching costs that happen to us cognitively. You know, we know the act of looking down at a text and back up is a 64-second loss, some of the studies show, or if you get distracted enough that you actually lose your train of thought, what the psychologists call a schema, um, that can be up to 23 minutes to kind of get back on track. And so you, you add all that up, and I was writing about this in the book, that, you know, you, you take 60 of the small text-driven things and, and maybe two of the bigger ones, that's like an hour and a half, right, mm -hmm. out of a day <laughs> immediately that, that is real time. Like, it's why we're working deeper and deeper. So um, I think, like, that that ability to say, okay, here's what's optimal for me, you know, and, and reflective time, it might be a two-hour block, but what I would really hear in all the interviews is the people that were really happy and doing well, they figured out what their rhythm of work was. So for some people, it was knocking out emails early. And the very next person I would talk to, they would look at me and say, have you lost your mind? <laughs> Why would I start with email? If I start with email, it never stops. And so for them, it's like, okay, you know, creative work early, short break, you know, some sort of physical activity, blocking time for email three times through the day in 30-minute increments and telling others, right? That's when you can expect to hear from me. And, and for their persona, that's what worked. And I, I think that's what people in general need to figure out and, mm -hmm. and put that kind of structure in. And that structure happens kind of in a micro basis on a day-to-day -day 
and then kind of a, a longer basis as you're looking kind of month to month. Are you building in the activities that re-energize you, that kind of, you know, are helping you grow in ways that you want to? Um, and that'll be different, you know, when you're, when you're describing introverts and extroverts. I mean, just that core difference of what creates or depletes energy for those groups, they would be doing that differently, you know, at the heart of it. And so uh, just to translate that, um, each individual should take responsibility for, and when I say should, uh, I said the S word, <laughs> uh, but create their own uh, reality day-to-day, their own habits. You know, I'm thinking about the power of habit. You know, it's like, okay, right. this is something that I trust. This is something that works for me. It energizes me. So it's not just seeing something out of a book and say, I'm going to do that uh, because the author deemed it appropriate. It's like, hey, this is going to you know, work for right. me. So that's work that we have to do. So um, just call that out. The other thing that I want to ask you about is... Well, and, and actually, if, if I could just jump in super quickly. Oh, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. I was still thinking about the Sean Aker, uh, you know, kind of idea, too, because I use his, his TED Talk in, in, in my classes constantly. And which around. is one of the best TED Talks of all time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you can't help but, but kind of be amazed at the dynamism and everything else. But, but one of the ideas that I really held on to is, you know, this idea of if you think happiness is just over the horizon, you're in trouble, right? You never catch up. And he says it more, you know, elegantly than that. Or the cognitive um, horizon of vertical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I see the exact same thing um, in this work around the well-being side. And what I'm seeing with people is that the magic of the happier people, and I've started to call these people my 10 percenters, in that they are, um, it's like I, I'm interviewing conventionally successful people. I don't get to these people unless they're considered good performers and they look happy by their organizations, you know, and some people actually had measures of if they were happy. So it's like everybody I get to is successful. Um, but you could hear as I went through this hundred women, hundred men, top organizations that about one in 10 was living life much more on their terms. Mm-hmm. And they were much more kind of proactive and kind of shaping it. And what they were doing was not the big things. And this is the fallacy, I think. Every time I get asked to write for Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, all they ever want is that what's the one thing that everybody should do, right? That one principle that we can remember the seductive story. And that's not what these people are doing. What I find them doing is that they are, to your point on the habits, it's the small moments that they're living differently, right? Mm-hmm. And so that they think about, um, I've got this wheel around how you get a sense of purpose in your life and the relationships that contribute to that that's come out of this work. And what I'll see, for example, is that, you know, they're making decisions. Um, for example, if they run for exercise, they may stop pursuing a 10K time goal that's just about themselves and actually think about how do I run with my child, their friend, and a parent, and it'll pull me into a couple of spheres that are a little bit more meaningful, you know, from a relational standpoint. So it's it's not doing anything different. Right. Or more, I should say. It's not hiking the Himalayas or the big thing. It's how do I take those small moments and live them, you know, a little bit, a little bit differently, you know. So I would just want to emphasize that when you mentioned the habit idea. I, no, I, I, I love it because, you know, there's a difference between being nudged and being prompted to do something. And there's another thing to take ownership of doing something differently. And what I'm hearing is taking ownership of doing something differently consciously and building habits around that. So you go through life not being victimized by circumstance, that you're actually being a creator. I think of the power of Ted, the empowerment dynamic, the opposite of a victim is a creator. So that's coming you know, to mind as you're sharing this. Yeah, I, I, in, some, 
months of it happened. Last thing, and I'll shut up. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. I'm gonna, no. In the, in the, it, 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 you know, what, like when I did the study on the high performers, I would ask them to tell me about it, you know, your career defining success, right? And, and I didn't care about what they had done. I was interested in the networks around it, but so many people's career defining success happened in a very small moment that they just happened to lean into at the right conversation. They took advantage of something that they could have just as easily flown right by with their head down. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I see the same thing on the well being side that so many of the relationships or the groups that have become critical to people's happiness, um, it, it happened as a product of leaning and maybe asking a few more questions, right? In a discussion, you uncover something about an individual that then becomes a very different connection for you. Um, so anyway, it, it, I think that's one of the challenges is we get overwhelmed, we fly by these moments, and we never veer off and see what could have been, you know, right. as, we're, as we're going through here. Well, that's, uh, you know, Carol Dweck, growth mindset, you know, staying in curiosity, compassionate curiosity at that, as opposed to being, uh, you know, shrinking the inner critic, elevating the compassionate witness. I mean, it, it, it's beautiful. I, I, you know, what you're talking about to me is taking, again, responsibility, not being victimized by the organization, creating boundaries, which I believe we have to do because organizations, and we'll get to that in a minute, have an incentive, either consciously or unconsciously, to get as much out of people as possible. And, you know, we can criticize that. We can have an ethical debate on the appropriateness of that. Um, and I would like to at some point. But, um, <laughs> but we, um, if we don't stand up for ourselves, we don't advocate for ourselves, take care of ourselves, then you know, who is going to do that? Yes, the organization has a role to play in you know, maintaining that over time. But they also, you know, want to get as much out of workers as they can. And so, again, I, without going down that tangent, because that is a, a big tangent, <laughs> I, I want to get this out uh, because it relates to diversity, not only in um, you know, ethnic diversity and uh, um, uh, people who have been disenfranchised historically. It's also the way we show up differently. And I'm thinking about Malcolm Gladwell, you know, Maven, connector, salesperson. I, you know, you've worked with Michael Arena. Um, you know, he's done great work and featured in the adaptive space around the idea of personas. In other words, the value that we deliver to an organization can and often is different person to person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, can you speak to that, um, you know, notion within the context of the work that you've been doing and appreciating people for who they are? Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll actually, but I, I'll pivot, you know, in a, in a way. And actually, I'd love to hit on just the diversity, equity, inclusion idea for just a moment. Because yeah, that's, absolutely. Um, you know, we certainly see roles and contributors in different ways. And I think when you see the network analytics, it starts to put specificity um, to things that create value that we haven't seen if we're just looking at skills profiles, right? Or, mm -hmm. or taxonomies or things like that. You start to really understand that, especially in these collaboratively intense times, um, that's, that is a portion of what's being brought to bear and that, that they're different, you know, people that have different kinds of impact. Um, I, I have, so I've been at this for 23 years, worked with over 300 organizations. We've run the network analytics over a thousand times across all these different studies and efforts and groups ranging from a couple of hundred to 80, 90,000. You know what I mean? We've done a lot of this. <laughs> and every single time I would try to get uh, markers of ethnicity and age and gender, right, from the companies to say, could we look at uh, diversity with this lens and see, you know, what, what you know we can see. And they were always willing to share gender with me um, for whatever reason. 
And so we did some pretty cool things to see kind of what's unique about men and, and women's networks and some of the, the challenges that both parties experience um, mm-hmm. differently. You know what I mean? Um, but what was fascinating is I could never get ethnicity or age <laughs> in there because the attorneys would block it. You know, at one point or another, it took me forever to figure that out as the, you know, the naive academic and, until um, uh, George Floyd and the social unrest. And what then happened out of the blue is I had companies that we had actually really significant network analytics on that suddenly said, okay, we, you know, we're, we're clear to kind of talk about this. We need to think about this and see it. And it was really eye-opening, you know, when we're able to think about this idea of inclusion from a network standpoint, you know, Mm -hmm. and you start to see, like, you know, in this work, that it's not one population that's dominating the center of these networks and others that are completely disenfranchised. It's actually islands and subcultures that each face unique challenges um, that uh, become observable. You know what I mean? You can kind of see what's going on. Uh, I think one of the more interesting things, and there's five or six paths we could go down depending on where you want to go, but, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of work going on around implicit bias right now, for example, and we know what happens, you know, fundamentally, that's how our brain is wired um, from sociologists have called it homophily, the tendency to kind of cluster, you know, by, by similarity and, and appearance. Um, and what, what, what's interesting to me is that the cognitive studies that are done in the MRI machines or just contained lab experiments, they kind of leave you to believe that once that impression is formed, you never change your mind. You know what I mean? Like the end of the experiment's over. Here's what we found. These people never change. And it's not true, right? We change our minds all the time, depending on how we're interacting with others. And we don't see, you know, in networks, if that were true, you would never see women talking to men and men talking to women, right? And that (laughs) happens, (laughs) you know, in the extreme. And so what's been really interesting in there is to be able to use these analytics to say, okay, who are the people that are breaking the mold, right? And they're, they're not getting defined in that cluster, but they're actually springboarding in. Mm-hmm. And then what are they doing? And it really showed me um, in a lot of interviews how they're, um, the way they're interacting creates trust, first in their capabilities, then in them, and they get pulled in more rapidly. And I think what I'm really excited about in this all is that you can teach people to do that. You can teach them that here's kind of how you need to share your capabilities in a way that aligns with what others are thinking about. Here's how you show competence. Here's how you create benevolence-based trust, two different kinds of trust. And it's it's, a little bit, I think, easier to think about than trying to teach people not to have implicit bias. You know, it's such a you know, rapid response that, that you may have it, but if we can actually say, okay, here's how you interact that gets around it, you know, then that's, that I think can have the, an enduring impact. And we're seeing evidence of that. I can't mention names of the companies that are doing this, but they're feeding in these ideas and nudges that seem to be having a nice impact and getting, getting inclusion. Well, with that in, in mind, uh, I recall a couple of years ago at the Paval conference here in San Francisco, uh, David White from LinkedIn um, announced LinkedIn's plus one pledge. Uh, in fact, it had already been announced, but he um, amplified it at the event. The plus one pledge was effectively pledging uh, that you as an established professional reach out uh, to someone outside of your network, um, potentially from a minority group, to 
have an exchange to understand their experience and to, if they have the interest to elevate them, to give them um, access to your network. Um, and so I have since done that um, and it's been rewarding for me. So you can probably anticipate the, the question here is, do we have a responsibility taking off the collaboration <laughs> overload discussion before, because we're kind mm -hmm. of prioritized, we're focused. However, in this case, do we have a responsibility, um, particularly given that many executives have gone to the same schools, they're you know mingling with the same you know, likenesses, you know, and I'm talking about white men, you know, obviously, you know, so if it's going to change and there, you probably saw uh, last year, there's just a group of executives in banking and they were all white men. I mean, they're just all white men. And so if that's going to change over time, there's going to have to be white men arguably reaching out to the network to bring others uh, that don't look like them into that network. So can, can you speak to that responsibility or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, well, I think every interaction, everything that we are seeing get good traction on in organizations, we're actually placing the, the nudges and the responsibilities of both places, mm -hmm. both kind of the, the leader, you know, and the individual and saying, okay, you know, leader, here's how you can help. So for example, we know the people that transition into groups much more rapidly than their peers. They, they build the network of a high performer much more rapidly. There's five kinds of connections that really matter. In, and so that can really be a great thing for the leader to be aware of and say, okay, this person coming in, here's how I can share my connections um, that, that have an impact there. And I actually think that's more important than um, I, I personally believe the people that are outperforming, they're building networks around the work they're doing that enable them to produce something at scale and mm -hmm. something of substance. And when that happens, then people are all drawn in, right? People want to be kind of around that, that performance. Um, and, and that's a broad, diverse network, you know, diverse in the sense of possibly people that look differently than you, but really also in the sense of people that have different capabilities, right? It's, yeah. it's those people that kind of reach out and integrate things that, that produce something bigger and then suddenly they're performing better, but they also have a reputation as a performer. So things come to them through mm. the network differently. Right. Uh, so there's things like that that I think the leaders can do uh, in these contexts. But, you know, without going into specifics, one of the things that was really fascinating in the studies is that there were certain, we were looking at gender and ethnicity combinations and some challenges that different groups had. And some of those groups were being sought, um, but they weren't going back, they weren't kind of taking advantage of the social capital that was in the system there for them. Mm. And so in that instance, you know, if you just focus on this level, it's not going to solve the problem. So we're very focused on, um, you know, for example, one idea of pull versus push, we can see in the, in these analytics on, on any kind of transition, you know, some groups come in and, and, and you're new to an organization. Somebody says, tell me what you do. And, and you sit down and Tell, tell that person, not in an arrogant sense, but you just say, well, here's, here's all the reasons you should think I'm smart. You know what I mean? You tell mm -hmm. your story. Right? We're told to kind of kind of tell that. And, and you know, what we're finding is the people that are really successful, they don't fall into that trap. They, they don't immediately start telling their story. They back away and say, well, tell me about the two or three things that are keeping you up at night or your two core priorities. And then they're shaping their expertise to what that person cares about giving status, generating energy, and creating a mutual win. Mm -hmm. 
So rather than telling their story, they're co-creating one with that individual. And suddenly, you know, the established person can say, okay, here's how this person fits, right? Cognitively, they can see it and they, they kind of pull them in. So like, that's where I see kind of, you know, things that we do with these nudges that really help the, um, I don't want to say disenfranchised, but the less connected people, because I think it can come from many in, in all walks of life. And I, that's, that's what seems to be doing better. I'm trying everything I do these days and, and design of the programs and things we're taking back to companies. I'm trying to situate the behavior you're looking for in a set of connections mm-hmm. and so that it, it kind of, you know, pulls in anyway. So that's a longer answer. <laughs> no, it, it, job, it's not. And it, and it makes perfect sense because we, that's how people get jobs. You know, that's how people learn about projects. That's, you know, that's just the way the world works as automated as it is. That's right. still, you know, relationships are critical. So I got to tell you, like the thing that I find interesting to me is what got me into the network ideas 23 years ago. I was running a research group at IBM and they were introducing things called knowledge marketplaces. Mm-hmm. And it was all the knowledge management craze. And people said, if we just get skills and jobs up on a board, people will find each other and they'll be great. And it never happened, right? Because of what you're saying, right? You know, you're not going to look at that. You're going to figure out, can I trust this person? You know, all these things that are just naturally wired into to kind of who we are. And that's what the, the pull versus push idea people are doing, right? They're establishing trust quickly, um, not by anything nefarious. They're just demonstrating how their capabilities fit better um, and get pulled in. So what's interesting to me is now we have all the talent marketplaces, right? Right, <laughs> right. Out there. And they're doing the exact same things, fancier terms, better technology, but they're still treating it as purely skills and disaggregation of work. They're not really factoring in the relational components that'll make them more successful. I'm working with John Boudreau on a piece on that right now that is something I hope to see. Yeah, well, yeah, amen. Because <laughs> I, 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 it's it's really important. It's one of my concerns too. It's not only you know skills because there's this, oh we're going to capture soft skills. Don't even get me on started on soft skills because just I think it's a um, just a bunch of dudes feminizing behaviors which are difficult, particularly right. to change. You know, so it's it's something that is a blind spot and that's where relationships come in qualifying that how does someone show up and and so yeah i look forward to that piece with you and john and uh yeah you know you have an advocate in me there's two other things i want to cover as we start to wrap here um one is the notion of town strategy and workforce planning and the other is your why and i want to get to that before we wrap today um the uh, I'm writing an article right now on organizational elasticity uh, because the idea is that, okay, historically, okay, we have this headcount plan. We're going to hire a bunch of people and they're going to go in and we're going to throw work at them and they're going to prioritize and we're just going to be great. <laughs> and as we've just discussed, you know, w- there are constraints on human beings. Um, and we didn't even speak to the reality of COVID and the fact that there's kids running around, that there's elder care. And so there are constraints on on people. Um, and there's things that come up. Um, you know, we might have this young person reaching out to us and, okay, do we ignore that or do we actually, you know, take action? Um, we, you know, might get sick. We might, um, you know, have a kid who gets sick and we have to, so, the idea that we build in elasticity in our workforce plans and we formulate our people or talent strategies to accommodate this, it might be idealistic. Um, however, uh, you and I, I would say, grew up in what I call the suck it up generation. It's like, there's your job, just suck it up. You know, that's the way it is. However, high value talent now 
um, they have choices. If they don't like the way their organization is uh, accommodating their needs, both professionally and humanistically, they're gone. And there's a bunch of data right now that's showing that people are leaving their jobs in large part for this reason. So with all that as a staging, you know, what are your thoughts to executives or advice or, or ideas to executives to accommodate this reality that, you know, high value talent in particular are not going to put up with this idea that you're just going to throw it at them, and expect them to do magic. Right. Right. I think, and, you know, a, a couple of, several things, I guess, running through my mind. One is the, the thing that I see over and over again is that there's some emergency that, that the, the group or the team or the organization responds to, and that becomes the new bar. That becomes the new normal. You know what I mean? And, and so there's that kind of tendency that happens. There's, um, you know, tendencies depending on the financial pressures from Wall Street or other other things that kind of ramp things up over and over again. That I think is a, it's it's killing places from an innovation standpoint. Like I can't it, running a consortium now. I've done this, you know, and you've been in this area too. I have never seen people so unable to think and have, a, have a, a moment to think anymore to the point where, you know, I, I've quit, I still write articles and books because that's what I have to do. But I mean, most of what I'm doing are these short 90 second videos. I have a little TV studio in my <laughs> basement now. That's what I'm figuring out. That's what it seems to be the capacity of what people can handle. And so you think about, well, what is that doing from an innovation standpoint, right? If you, if we literally have kind of done that, we've taken the elasticity out mm -hmm. to that degree, that's a really, really big deal. Um, and so I think that's going to be, you know, something that companies have to wrestle with. And I also think individuals have to be thinking about how do I make sure that I'm saving that space, right? Or creating that space, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit more in, uh, in places. Um, I will say that as I did this well-being work, I'm not going to mention the name of the organizations, but it was a very well-known professional services, you know, consulting firm. And, uh, you know, I, I'm getting, I'm talking again to conventionally successful leaders, right? People that are, that are doing very well. And they had a, I think it was a, a triple matrix design and in essence of jobs that were fundamentally not feasibly possible by laws of physics anymore, mm -hmm. right? It's because of pressures from Wall Street and we have to do this, we have to redesign. And, you know, people were making decisions, not on how do I accomplish this, but on which ball can I drop? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And you're like, that's just not good right no. that's not going to be good for anybody even if they stay it's not good you know let alone like you're saying the flight risk of that so I, I think my hope with it is when I've been able to go into places with the analytics and have the network analysis done and I can say look this role that you've designed the consultants may like it because suddenly you got greater efficiencies you know greater span of control whatever but it's undoable and let me show you why people get it. They immediately will make decisions that change what they're doing. But right now we don't have the, those analytics as, as readily at play as I hope we get to, to, to kind of keep that from happening um, in my, in my mind anyway. <laughs> yeah. There's so much that I want to talk to you about, but I know we got to wrap. So, you know, Rob, if you would, I'd love to you know do this with you uh, again, because what's coming to mind is, you know, how do organizations systematically formulate, measure and manage talent strategy over time. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, in, you know, with the balanced scorecard and evidence-based decision-making and Jeffrey Pfeffer is someone that I really like and respect his work. Um, 
but I still see many leaders just managing from the gut. Oh, I've been doing this for three, 30 years and you know, I, that sounds nice. That looks nice, but I'm, we're just going to do this anyway. So, you know, the idea that data driven decision-making is going to become the norm, not only in HR, but, you know, at the enterprise level. Um, and I hope to see that, but that's a whole separate discussion. Yeah. Now, as, as we wrap now, I want to just ask you, I mean, this is, um, it's really powerful work from a humanistic standpoint, from an organizational competitiveness standpoint. Um, and it's also really difficult. <laughs> it's, it's noisy. Um, we're not getting perfection at the end of the day. I've seen many uh, leader have an appetite for just tell me what to do. Just, you know, this is like our current state. If I do this intervention that I want you know, see to happen. And I was like, that's not how it works. You know, if we're at this current state and if you do this, you, you, you're going to improve incrementally, you know, downstream. And there's no guarantee of that, you know, happening, but you have a heightened level of confidence on what your, what you do is actually going to deliver the desired return. So with that, you know, as a staging, I want to, you know, we can come back to the intricacies another time, but why, did you get into this work? I mean, it is noisy, it's hard. And you know, what, in, what inspired you to say, okay, you know, this is what I'm going to tackle in my professional career? Yeah, it, so there's, there's two layers to that. So it's kind of the first, I would say, 15 years in the last seven or eight, I guess, and, and a really big pivot that I made in there. One in the first component of it was just recognizing that things were not happening in the way that people had in their heads, you know, whether you say it's the formal structure and the fact that that doesn't reflect as much of reality or, or, you know, when I was at IBM, people were implementing technologies right and left that weren't having an impact because people would just reach to each other, you know, and then they might go in the system. So it was, it was kind of that idea and consistently getting feedback from the consortium. That's been, you know, the thing that's kept me going because it is crazy hours and it's crazy to kind of push against you know, the, the more normative views sometimes. And it's, the, the network ideas have become wildly accepted, but they didn't start that way 20 years ago. You know, people are like, what is this? What's he doing? And, but, but there was a rightness to it. And, and I've always had great companies engaged in the consortium, really thoughtful people to kind of not just look at it academically, but then to be pushing and co-creating in ways that, that had an impact. So I think that has really fueled me, you know, that, that ability to kind of see the impact and have be lucky enough, quite frankly, to have this space where I've got all these wonderful collaborators. I'll say the last, last answer to that is, you know, starting about six, seven, eight years ago, I, I really pivoted hard and started doing several hundred interviews a year um, mm -hmm. in these different programs of work and getting into people's lives at the level that I'm getting into now and really understanding the significance of what's happening to people if we don't figure this out has hooked me in a way that I've never been, you know, hooked before. So, you know, the two. You're saying about the relationships? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a really deep way, like I, these 200 interviews I just finished on well-being, I would say 20 of them, at some point people were crying, you know, and I'm not a soft, fuzzy guy at that level. I'm like, oh, <laughs> but, you know, we're, you know, that's the level you're getting to is like, you, you know, this you, conversation, you probably have with three people in your lives and you have 200 of those and you start to get a sense of, you know, here's how people are suffering because we have incorrect models, kind of like the Sean Aker idea, success is over the horizon, success is the next promotion, the bigger house. Um, and we're not saying we're materialistic, but we're chasing 
all the possibilities for our kids, which is always a moving target. And it leads us into things that aren't, aren't healthy. Um, that has had an impact on me that, that changed my life, you know, going through and having these discussions and kind of realizing it because you don't see that with people. And every one of these interviews starts out the first 10 or 15 minutes, it's the polished professional person. Right. And then you kind of get down a layer and you're like, there's a problem here, <laughs> you know, right. that we really need to, to kind of work on. So, so that's the, that's the why I think the big why for me right now. Well, you know, thanks for sharing and thanks for doing what you do because it's invaluable. It's massively important. And I really, really appreciate you uh, sharing. And uh, we do this with me again, please. Oh, absolutely, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anytime you name it. Yeah. yeah all right. I mean, cause I mean, I, I want to emphasize that um, you are one of my heroes. I mean, you inspire me in, in, in a very unique way. So keep doing what you do. Uh, keep being your awesome self and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. All right. Thank you, Al. Thank you so much. All right, Rob. You'll be well. Cheers. Thanks for joining the People Data for Good podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the People Data for Good movement, please visit us at pafau.net.